0: Uh, you know, so it starts at the lunch table. And uh, let's just say there were a lot of things on the floor of the lunch table. We had young kids, they throw stuff like cottage cheese and other things of that nature. And so she was telling us, and like, hey, here's the home, here's the afternoon. Now, how many people like to host? Anybody like to host people in their home? All right, a few, a lot of us, actually. So we love hosting as well. And uh, but one of the things we you know, there's a lot of work that goes into hosting, right? You usually to clean. So, a couple takeaways from the lunch of Thursday with Caleb's cottage cheese everywhere. He likes to also, uh, like, console himself by grabbing his hair, so that means the cottage cheese and the, the strawberry jam and everything else was also in his hair that day. Uh, when that happens, know that if you're in our home and it's clean, we clean for you. Okay? Like, know that. Because the reality is, we have to really regularly in disarray with young children, all right? My hope with that, we are engaging a story this morning that is about authenticity, okay? Authenticity. If you're in our home and it's clean, we cleaned it. That's not how it normally is. There's usually pugs, cheese on the floor. As we continue in our series, uh, we are engaging a really important story in the life of Jesus. You can grab the Bible out to Mark chapter nine, uh, and it goes on the heels of last week. We are traveling through the life and mission of Jesus. Last week, just real recap here, is Jesus had taken his three inner disciples, Peter, James, John, and he invested into them and invited them into an experience that only they saw. He, they went up this mountainside and Jesus transfigured before them, turning blindingly white, uh, revealing his future glory. In this moment, Jesus is actually saying, Look, like, I am God in the flesh, and he's giving them a taste of the future resurrection would look like, uh, because he the teaching saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to rise, and people weren't getting it, right? And so he does that. In that moment, he shows that he's God, Moses and Elijah appear, and then the voice of the Father speaks audibly, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So a wild scenario, and we said that this is the breadcrumb of God's glory, that God will give these little breadcrumbs, these little foretastes of who he is and what he's about to to help us and encourage us on our journey. And he continues to do those sorts of things. They can be like a mountaintop experience or they can be very mundane moments as well because God is trying to shape us to become people who listen and who obey. So that's on the heels of last week, and they come down the mountain. That's what's happening here. Is this is the come down the mountain story? And so the way we're gonna travel this morning is we're gonna look at the story and take it in chunks. Okay, it's called chunking the story. So we'll read a few verses, chew it in a chunk, arrive at what we think God is, is showing us through that, and then once we've navigated the whole back and and highlight a few next steps alright so here we go Mark chapter 9 verse 14 they've come down the mountain here's what happens when they came to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them as soon as all the people saw Jesus they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him what are you arguing with them about he asked so kind of a funny re-entry right? Uh, he comes in, the other nine find themselves in a heated argument, right? Jesus to the other three, they're in an argument because some gang teacher of the law is here, a few of them, starts to make a fight, right? They're probably looking for Jesus and saying, hey, where is it? the disciples? are scratching their head, going like, I don't know, he's up on top of you, and like, they don't know what's going on. They say, fine, we'll argue with the best ones, right? We will argue, I'm looking for Jesus, but we'll argue with you, and as we go back and that all of a sudden people are crowding, right? So there's a crowd that begins to form around them. And you kind of hear this crowd in my, my opinion going like fight, 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 right? I mean, you can you remember back to middle school, high school, like the fights. You know, two dudes start kind of like cursing each other out, and fun, but people are like, ooh, watch this, and so they're getting heated, right? And then all of a sudden people start chanting, fight because they want to fight. And the best ones are the ones where like they're cursing back and forth. The bell rings the alright 330 parking lot. Yeah. Hey, these two guys are fighting around, like, get out to the market on 3.30, right? The word gets out, and you have this massive crowd. So Jesus is crashing the parking lot scene because they scheduled a fight. That's what's going on here. Now, Jesus, like a famous person that he was, uh, kind of disperses, right? So he shows up, and that's who everyone wanted anyways, right? And so direction, uh, attention is directed towards him, and he says, what's the fight about, Like, right? What's going on here? So that's our setup. Seven. Verse 17. It gets a bit more personal here. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And uh, clearly it's a parent, this sounds like a terrible story, right? This would be really, really challenging. Uh, Three years ago, far less that, far less years, but three years ago, uh, Luke had a moment as a toddler, where he gets out of the bathtub, falls, and, and bites his tongue, right, and as Krista goes to pick him up and figure out what's going on, uh, we're talking like the, the, the snake skin split to tongue, right, and we're, it's like hanging, right, and we're going, oh no, uh, you know, bleeding profusely, all that stuff, we go to the hospital, thankfully we Right? So not what's going on with this dad. This dad articulates that he believes his son is possessed by a spirit, and that the results are major and obvious. So when the spirit seizes him, he's robbed of speech, he gets thrown to the ground, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid, and this is quite terrifying. Now, uh, as we engage, we're all different places in our spiritual journey, and uh, you know, before I go any further, whether it's to equip those who believe uh, that spirits, uh, you know, that there are supernatural spirits, or whether you're skeptical of that, uh, just a couple comments. You know, I think in our modern culture that we find ourselves in, it's easy to kind of like ruffle at the boy's condition that a spirit has seized him. Right? Uh, I think it can be very tempting or, or very common that we'll step into like a secular psychoanalytical approach, which might say. This is just simply a mental disorder, and this is simply an episode of epilepsy. Uh, I think it can be also easy to step into a secular, scientific, medical approach, which again, we're just trying to say, what are the symptoms, what are the natural causes that can explain this? I think it can also be a temptation to fall into really what I would say is actually a culturally arrogant position, which is, hey, look, folks, it's 2,000 years later, like, we're a bit smarter than that, come on superstitious stuff happens now here would be the caution the caution is not to throw away psychology or science or philosophy Uh, we definitely believe in a multidisciplinary approach to to knowledge Uh, we actually believe that god is working through many different ways and, and ways to find knowledge i think the qualifying word is secular right a secular approach to those things science is a discipline of knowledge it's not opposed to christianity it's not opposed to belief But naturalism is, right? So the view of naturalism is one that has a presupposition that doesn't make space for the supernatural, right? That would be a problem. Same with psychology. There's nothing wrong inherently wrong with psychology at all. Uh, But secular psychology would not make space for the divine. So maybe, in the moment, the the caution is be skeptical of your skepticism. Uh, My encouragement as we engage and continue in this story is at least maybe if you have some skepticism or doubt, maybe put just a bit on the side or to consider making space for the supernatural realm, which it's funny, again, in this culture where everything is a secular voice, 95% or more of the world makes space for the divine, makes space for the supernatural. And so it's important that we might uh, park that on the side because not 2000 years ago, but at this time, the vast world uh, believe in the supernatural. And when we look to the mental maps of Jesus, when we look to the historic Christian faith, we make space for the supernatural, both spirits uh, that are good and evil and everywhere in between, all right? So let's go back to that hurting father though, because bottom line, he's desperate, all right? He's at the end of his rope. He's longing for the healing of his child. And could you uh, drum roll with me? Jesus is gonna speak, all right? Can we drum roll? Can you do it? Yeah, we're in. Okay, and Jesus says, verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. This is like that moment where we remind each other that that Jesus is not Mr. Rogers. Okay, we say that around here. Uh, Sometimes we can have that view of Jesus is Mr. Rogers, that's not the case, right? He uh, takes this moment to blast his entire generation. Like where is faith in this place? And yet make sure we hear that he has immediate openness to healing this child, right? Bring the boy here to me. Now we're gonna circle back here. So just kind of hang on to the offensive moment from Jesus, okay? So we will circle back. Let's travel to the next chunk, verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And so in this chunk, we even see kind of, you know, first and foremost, how this problem is even greater and deeper than we might have thought. Um, And I just imagine Jesus, as he engages uh, this man with intrigue and with pain and with this helpful doctor sort of posture, like how long has this been going on, right? He's wanting to know what's going on. And the condition, as the dad says, is it's been happening since his childhood. There have been numerous near-death experiences, it seems, according to him. And so we see that the man is strung out emotionally, right? He is, he is humble, and he has this desperate plea, but if you can do anything, please help us take pity on, this, on the son and on myself. And this word pity, it comes, it comes up often in the life of Jesus. It's this word splagnesomai. It means compassion, and it's this deep guttural compassion in the inward deepest places like bowel syndrome type of compassion. And often Jesus was described as somebody who, when he would see needs, when he would approach a crowd, his compassion would be triggered. His would be con- would be triggered. And so this man is asking for the very thing that Jesus has abundance of, compassion. And yet, we see the man's also not fully sure Jesus can do something right? But if you can. And Jesus then takes offense at that. It says, verse 23, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. So Jesus in this offense probably says something here that makes a lot of us a little bit uncomfortable, right? Everything like everything is possible. And maybe you're going like, all right, maybe this is like a whoops moment for Jesus. Like, ah, he didn't really mean everything. I mean, you know, maybe that's not what he meant. Here are three other very uncomfortable statements that are similar to this from Jesus. Look at John 14 with me. Uh, on the night he was crucified, and, or the night before he was crucified, says this, verse 12, he's speaking to his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Again, maybe the disciples were sleeping. Look at John 15. So, one of the very next things he says If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It's the middle of the night. Maybe he thought they were sleeping. He kind of gives a very similar teaching repeated. And if we go to Matthew chapter 17, this same story back to this man as he engages with Jesus. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus says this, he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And the implication of this story is this mustard seed is very small, right? (laughs) So even if you only had this much faith, Jesus is saying, and the implication is you don't even have that, right? So what do we do with these clear teachings of Jesus, right? Where he's talking about belief and faith, which uh, the best way to understand that is trust, right? When we say we believe in Jesus or we have faith in Jesus, it's about trust, And so this is probably making a lot of us uncomfortable. It certainly makes me uncomfortable if it's not making you. Um, But I think it's vital that we feel the discomfort of these teachings, of these statements before we can receive Jesus's comfort. Because let's tune in back to this story. We move towards the climactic moment. Jesus says, if you have faith, everything is possible. And the desperate, hurting man responds this way. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. And this is an amazing response, right? His immediacy, his exclamation in the story, there's no doubt this is the climax of the story. The observant reader, somebody who might be familiar with the life of Jesus, you're going, okay, he's gotta heal this boy, right? Like Jesus got to do something. And yet there's so much tension, dynamic tension in the story that is unleashed in this moment. Because this man is saying, Jesus, I do believe. Jesus, I wouldn't have run after your disciples and brought my son here and tracked them down. I wouldn't have engaged in this conversation. I wouldn't have made this ask if there wasn't something in me that believed. But, but this is the only narrative I've ever known. Like my, ch- my kid from childhood has been struggling in this way. I can't even count the many times I have saved him from a near death experience. Jesus, uh, help my unbelief because I can't possibly imagine this situation And so Jesus, with all power and authority, in the simplest of statements sets this boy free and, and, and then literally picks him up as well. Kind of, you know, there's such a powerful moment here because this boy gets to now walk his life in a very different direction from here on out. And, and the postlude of the story, the last couple of statements is the disciples are stumped. It says in verse 28, as Jesus, after Jesus had gone indoors, the crowd disperses, right? His disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we drive this thing out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And so what do we make of this wildly emotional scene from the life of Jesus? You know, the first strand I would like us to circle back to that I think we need to camp in is the offense that Jesus brings to the people that day. He said they lacked faith. He said they lacked trust. He said, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I just think there are so many reasons why we can uh, you know, find ourselves with doubting our doubts, right? Doubting our beliefs, doubting uh, what we believe to be true. And, and I think it's a moment for us to wrestle with that, right? To let that sink in and to recognize that oftentimes... We have a great lack of faith in Jesus and in God. Um, And I think we need to not try to set aside that Jesus was actually in this moment irritated at the lack of faith in his generation. He clearly meant at least the crowd in that moment. Maybe he meant anyone who interacted with him in his public and earthly ministry. This is a pretty like kind of all encompassing statement here. And yet notice what was he triggered by? It was not the dad. Right? It was not the dad's desires and pursuits and requests. It was actually the nine disciples that they weren't able to already get rid of the spirit before he arrived on the scene. He's actually triggered by those who knew him best. <laughs> That's fascinating, right? It was their lack of faith where he's going, yikes, like, does anyone believe that, that I'm able to do what I'm able to do? And uh, here, if you think I'm attacking you, and maybe if you're going, wow, like I'm not sure I would believe either. Here's where you need to hear a little bit of my upbringing because there's two real strong voices in my head that would that definitely add to me not having faith quite often, actually. Uh, the first is a, secu- a secular current of, of stream of belief. Some of my strongest is, as just a type A wiring personality type of person is to go, man, like I try to do things in my own power, in my own ability. Um, I do have a lot of compassion and care for those who have differing spiritual beliefs. I recognize the complexity of life, the thousands upon thousands of shades of gray for people in their different beliefs. I have dear friends and family members who do not share my convictions about Jesus. And I don't believe life is easy or simplistic, all right? So when I'm honest with myself, Even though I have this deep abiding belief in God, there are secular currents of life that say, Morgan, just do your own thing, like direct your own life. Uh, Being the autonomous ruler of my life is very appealing. All right. So I need to recognize that because one of the greatest values of the secular culture is self-autonomy, right? That I get to choose how I do life, that I am the operator. Uh, cultural commentator, Pastor Mark Sayers, way out in Australia, uh, he believes there are three major buckets that humans need for human flourishing. It's autonomy, freedom, meaning, and then it's relationships, right? That those three things are really, really important. And he would argue that the problem in the West is that our bucket of, uh, of autonomy, of freedom, is overflowing. And everything in our culture says grab more freedom, more ability, more of your own, becoming your own self-autonomous being. And here's the challenge: is As that freedom overflows, your meaning and your relationships actually get lower. Let me show you. In my parenting, some of my major challenges and irritations as a dad is the moments when my self-autonomy is going down. Like that is oftentimes whether it's a meltdown in my home where I'm needing to attempt to be emotionally present and caring and loving when I don't want to, when my kids want to play late at night and I am just exhausted and I wanna check out, uh, when I need to get up at 2.40 a.m. for a diaper change before Carissa takes care of Belle, I'm losing autonomy and I love me some autonomy, okay? That's what's one of the challenges. And so the beauty of those moments if I can see it correctly, although my autonomy is going down, my meaning is going up. My relational connectedness with my spouse, with kids is actually going up. But if I fight for the autonomy, then those, they can't both win out. There's actually a way that as we lose certain aspects of autonomy, that meaning and purpose and relationships are going up. But I will regularly Keep fighting for the self-autonomy. So that's one stream of voice that you need to know about me that makes it hard for me to trust Jesus at times. A second one is I grew up in a church that uh, was cessationist. And if you're not familiar with that word, a, there's an entire theology built around it. Um, and, and essentially it says, hey, everything that we see in the life of Jesus, all the supernatural Holy Spirit, uh, like healings and, and and demonic possessions and things of that, uh, that uh, nature. Also in the book of Acts, we see Jesus's earliest disciples praying and doing some really powerful stuff, exactly what Jesus said they would do, uh, at some random time, all that stuff stopped. Like God stopped acting that way. So yes, we affirm it in the life of Jesus. Yes, we affirm it in the early church, but guess what? That stuff doesn't happen anymore, right? This is cessationism where where the Holy Spirit stopped doing those sorts of things a long, long, long time ago. And again, people who love God, who love the Bible, who are trying to take both seriously uh, have come to the conclusion that God just simply does not do that stuff. And that was very formative in my life as well. And so what that would do with this story is it allows us to compartmentalize it say, great, Jesus did that stuff. Great, his early disciples did that stuff, but that stuff doesn't happen anymore, so I don't have to have a faith that it might actually happen anymore. And it allows us to to write off uh, those sorts of things. And so I just wanna say that's where I'm coming from. I don't know where you're coming from in this, but when I hear Jesus' offense that he's bothered by the lack of faith, I know I have streams in me that make it hard for me to actually have faith in this Jesus in these specific ways, right? Not in the broad way of saying I believe Jesus, but in these very specific ways. And so over the last 15 years, there's had to be a lot of work done in me to say, God, like, what do I actually believe who you are and how you're acting in the world and how you wanna work in and through me? I've had to regularly repent to change my thinking and to change my actions when it comes to these real uh, scenarios. And so serve as a spiritual family. I really believe that God wants to shape us to be a people of great trust, of great faith, that God is at work in the world and that they play out, God is working in very mundane and very real ways in the everyday, our everyday lives. But the real rubber meets the road it is when we get into these types of circumstances, like this dad asking Jesus for very real healing. They play out in my life with with Luke, with a cyst on the back of his head. Am I going to reach out my hand at night when I pray with him every night? And am I actually gonna ask God, will you heal him? Like, will you make this go away? And this is not an either or, like as if we haven't also gone to doctors and haven't also uh, consulted uh, people who know things and, and, and medicine and things of that nature. It's not an either or. But it's saying, am I gonna ask God to do some things that only he can do in these moments? And am I gonna ask other friends, people like you, to say, look, hey, would you begin praying for my son Luke? Because he's got this thing And, and we would love to see the Lord actually heal it. And some of you have, and what's fascinating is, you know, recently we've heard from a doctor that, hey, uh, right now there's no need for surgery when he was scheduled in December, but couldn't because of pneumonia and it's been pushed off. And they said, well, six to nine months, maybe come back, but he may not need it. And those are the very words we have been hoping and praying for. And so we don't know what God is up to. We don't. And yet God is doing something and we've invited others to pray. Those are the scenarios where the rubber meets the road. Like, How are you going to engage them? And so the first word this morning is just, will we allow the offense that Jesus brought to his disciples that day? Like, will we allow it to ruffle our feathers? All right, will we allow those statements to make us uncomfortable? Will we allow Jesus to challenge us and for us to examine our lack or or our abundance of faith? So, Some of you might be now experiencing some forms of either shame or or voices of condemnation. Like, I don't believe that. Maybe maybe I need to chuck the whole faith. Maybe I'm not sure what to do with that. I really wanna make sure you're pausing that voice because that voice is also not from the Lord. It's not from the scriptures. It's certainly not from me. And here's the beauty of the story. So hang with this climax because it's this dad who immediately exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And it's this voice that my hope is that we would really engage well this morning because I would call this voice authentic faith, right? This is authentic faith. It's a faith and a trust that is both hopeful and nuanced. It's a faith that is humble and honest. It's an authentic faith that does not try to drum up like, oh my goodness, I'm not sure God believes those things. Like, well, let me force myself to believe something I think is supposed to be true. Right, It's not doing that because that never works. And that's gonna result in some of those voices of shame uh, and condemnation thinking, I don't have enough faith. What the man models is very beautiful. I There's parts of me that believe this, but Jesus helped me overcome my unbelief. I have some faith in you, but the unbelief is winning. This word help is the word betheo here. And the nuance of the word really draws up. If you watch, uh, you know, if you see on a side street, have you ever watched a fire engine or a police car when there's a real emergency on a side street? It's kind of scary when they're going like 65 down Mission Road, right? It'll catch you. But that's because they have a real emergency. Like somebody isn't gonna make it. They are counting the seconds to make sure they can get here. That's the type of word that this man used. Like, help me, rescue me from all the unbearable. Belief. It's winning, I have an emergency in my soul. Jesus, come and rescue my un, me from my unbelief. Like that would be my desire for me. That would be my desire for our spiritual family, is to learn how to walk in authentic faith, where we call out both the ways we do trust God, like deep down in our gut that we go, man, like I am in with this God. And yet we also recognize the painstaking honest realities, that sometimes we doubt in some very real ways. It's a posture that will also, in that rooted authenticity says, but I'm willing to risk as well. Right, We don't just stay there and call it like, whoop, I don't believe in anything. Like, no, we still lean in and take the next step. It's a step of really praying for a healing or submitting the God dreams that you have God birthing in you that seem to make no sense and still saying, help my over, overcome my belief, but let me take that next step. Right? It's a posture where we don't fake it. We don't mask our unbelief. It's when, hey, the cottage cheese is on the living for We're not pretending like it's not there. Right, That the messy reality of our lives, we don't try to hide it, and we certainly don't allow ourselves or voices from others or voices from the evil one to shame us that we don't have enough faith. Instead, we bring those doubts to the one who can birth greater faith in us, this Jesus. And so let me land the ship by offering just a few tangible steps for us this morning. The first is I really wanna encourage you, would you identify a place where your faith seems to be lacking, right? And not in a broad general way, but in a real like this you know very specific area confess that ask for greater faith and then you've got to lean in to take that risk. So amidst the place where you're like, man, I'm, I'm not sure I believe very much. God increased that belief, but what does it look like to take a step and to pray in direction or take an action in that direction, even in the authentic reality that you may not fully believe, but you're asking God to give you greater belief in that area. Are you willing to pray and to fail like the disciples did? Those nine were trying to do something. We don't get the backstory on how they were trying to get that spirit out, but they were trying <laughs> and they failed. Uh, And yet Jesus used that and leveraged that for a great teaching moment and to increase their faith. Will we dive in and go into risky spaces with our prayers and with our actions authentically, right? So that balance, that tension is hard, but take a step. So that'd be the first step to consider this week. The second would be to have a conversation with somebody you think their faith is a little bit further along than yours in some very specific areas. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I have some friends who, who, man, they believe some certain things about God and about the supernatural and about how he's at work in this world that I haven't yet really fully embodied, right? Like I'll say it, there are people further along than me. And and so with that, it can be really powerful and important to rub shoulders with people who are a little bit further along than you. And so I'd wanna encourage you, if you're identifying a very specific way in which you're like, man, I don't know if I trust God in this way, find someone who does, sit down with them and pick their brain and learn about their experience and why, what has helped to increase their faith and their trust. The final is I wanna continue to invite everyone uh, next week to the annual partner meeting uh, because I, I really, it's, it's an exciting time for us. I mean, you know we're just two, about two and a half years after launch. And I feel like as much today as, as ever that we know who we are and where we're headed as a spiritual family. And so part of that, I would say, I've been afraid even to name certain parts of our vision. And when I look at this year in 2020 and till 2030, like I want us to say, this is what I think God has us on the hook for. And there's a part of me that as I'm gonna share that, there's gonna be parts of me that go, help me overcome my unbelief right? And so we're going to name God dreams around here that we believe we're supposed to be on the hook for and that we're going to run after. And we want to invite you to come and hear those things and believe with us because the stuff we're going to share, it's not going to happen unless God works, unless he moves, unless he grabs our hearts and sets us on fire. And so I want to invite you be there for that, to hear that, to experience that, to ask questions around that. Our management team, our staff, many of you as leaders are, are excited uh, to be a part of that. So please come and listen to some of the God dreams that God is birthing in and through serve. I'd like to end our time this morning with, as far as the message with our imaginations. If you are found high up, dream with me, think with me for a moment. If you are found up high on, on the edge of a cliff, I don't know why you're on the edge of a cliff. Don't go to an edge of a cliff, okay? All right, fine, there, I said it. All right, we're on the edge of a cliff. And uh, as we find ourselves on the edge of a cliff, uh, for whatever reason, a fresh wind blows, you lose your balance and you begin falling. And uh, you're thousands of feet up. And as you fall, you know, hey, this is gonna result in death unless we're able to stop the fall, right? So what would be the better scenario? So as you're falling, you've got great consciousness, right? You're not going into shock, none of that, right? So you're falling, but what would be the better scenario? You on the side of the cliff scope a really, really tiny branch and you have all the faith in the world that that really, really tiny branch is gonna break your fall and that you are going to live. Would you prefer that scenario or would you prefer the scenario that as you fall, you see a really large, capable, strong branch and you only have the littlest bit of faith? Just the tiniest bit of faith but enough to kind of like, try to like Superman your angle towards it and put out your arm to grab that large branch. What scenario would you rather have? I would certainly want that second scenario, right? Like, let me get, get me the big branch where I just have enough, just a little bit of faith in order to hold it. And the point of this is that the object of our faith is far more important than the subject. We can have all the faith in the world in the wrong things, and it won't matter, and we can have the smallest little bit in the right thing, and it will matter. Jesus is known as the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the great and immense object, the, uh, the uh, eternal God with infinite power that you and I are invited to place all our faith and all our trust in, and the smallest bit of faith in the right object can make all the difference. And so let us fix our eyes and our hope, our belief, our trust on the one who is calling us calling us to himself. And let us continue to learn how to cry out authentically, help me with my unbelief. Would you pray? Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.